King Henry VIII of England had six wives, but not all at the same time. Well, uh, King Henry, known to his close friends as Harry, was his parents' second son. However, through the strange accidents of history, he found himself at the age of 17 both King of England and married to his dead older brother's wife, Catherine of Aragon. Over the next seven years, Henry and Catherine were to have five children, but all but one died before or soon after childbirth. The child who lived was a daughter named Mary. However, by this time, what Henry desperately wanted was to get rid of the aging and barely fertile Catherine and to marry the young and beautiful Anne Boleyn. He wanted to divorce Catherine, or more accurately, he wanted an annulment, in order to be able to marry Anne. But the only person who had the authority to grant that divorce or annulment was the Pope. And the Pope said no, and the Pope wasn't budging. Allow me to introduce you to another character in all of this, Thomas Cranmer. And just so you know know why we're doing this, today I'm presenting the second of a four-part series of talks on the English Reformation. We are looking at what it means to be Anglican and finding out how it is that Anglicans exist in the first place. And last week we looked at the story of the English Bible. This week's talk is entitled Kings, Queens and Bishops. Well, uh, Thomas Cranmer was born in 1489, two years uh, before Henry. And about the time that uh, Henry and Catherine were married, Thomas was studying at Cambridge before being ordained as a priest. He was an extremely bright man and recognized in his age as an outstanding theologian. Now, from about 1520 onwards, Thomas met regularly with a group of scholars to talk about Martin Luther and everything that was happening in continental Europe. And what was happening, of course, in 1520 was that the European Reformation was in full swing. Uh, Martin Luther had already denounced the Roman Catholic Church, her teachings and the Pope, and he was himself just about to publish the Bible in German. Uh, the everyday language, speaking language of the German people. And all of this was revolutionary. As a, as a theologian himself, Thomas Cranmer was deeply impressed with Martin Luther's ideas and became likewise a champion of Reformed theology and thinking. And he could do that as an academic, as a scholar, because Cambridge gave him, um, as a scholar, some freedom and protection. Henry VIII, on the other hand, thought that Martin Luther's ideas were dangerous nonsense, and he wrote a book telling everybody why. And Pope Leo X, off in Rome, read Henry's book, and he was so impressed that he gave him a medal and a title, the Defender of the Faith. Uh, Thomas thought that he had an idea that could help the king with respect to his desire to divorce Catherine. Thomas's idea, in essence, was that the king should split from Rome because the king wasn't really king if he was taking orders from somebody else, if he was taking orders from the Pope. 
And that caught the king's imagination and flattered his ego. And he asked him to look into it and to write a book about it. And that took Cranmer to Germany. In Germany, Thomas Cranmer met with Lutheran Reformed theologians uh, that, and that he was so tremendously impressed by them as attested to by the fact that he married one of their daughters, even though he was technically a Roman Catholic priest under a vow of celibacy. In that same year, Thomas Cranmer also became Archbishop of Canterbury, the top bishop in England. And he immediately declared Henry's marriage to Catherine Void and Henry's marriage to Anne valid. And in 1534, the English Parliament, uh, following the instructions of the king, enacted a series of laws that broke ties with Rome and made King Henry VIII the supreme head of the church in England. And one of the things that the world at this time took for granted was the idea that actually a king should be the absolute ruler of his domain. And so what the reformers were doing then in England was they were using Henry's situation to create a split, seeing in that split the possibility, the opportunity for further reform. Um, Thomas Cranmer himself believed in absolute royal authority. Um, he, he understood that his primary duty under God was to obey the king. This meant that time and time again, Thomas, when he was ordered to support religious policies of the king that he disagreed with and that he disapproved of, he supported them. He supported them anyway because he understood that his first duty was to obey the king. Now, in order to enforce the split between England and Rome, it was declared that if anyone disagreed with the king about him being the head of the Church of England, then that person was guilty of treason. Uh, to, to be guilty of treason, to be a traitor, it was, it was considered the worst possible of any possible crime. And so for it was reserved the worst possible punishment, which was death by being hung, drawn, and quartered. So, all the leading political and religious men were ordered to sign a document to sign the oath of supremacy, agreeing, yes, Henry is the supreme head of the church. Well, it's time to introduce another figure in this drama, Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More was a brilliant and widely respected statesman serving in Henry's court, as well as actually being a close personal friend of King Henry. He, like the king, disagreed with Reformed theology. And at this point, it is probably worth taking a few minutes to outline what it means to be a convinced Protestant or a convinced Catholic. So let's think about what that means. Let's start with the place where Protestants and Catholics agree. And that is that we all agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, Protestants and Catholics hold to this same Christian understanding of Jesus as fully man, fully God, Savior and Lord. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as God with us. Both Protestants and Catholics agree. Now, in the Bible, we meet the apostles who were Christ's authorized representatives 
as his witnesses. Um, The New Testament gives us evidence about the authority that the apostles had in those days when they were still alive, but after Jesus had gone back to heaven. In other words, that period of the New Testament that begins at the start of the book of Acts and goes to the end of the New Testament. And as we heard in our gospel reading this morning, um, Jesus gave Peter, as his chief of apostles, extraordinary authority. Indeed, he gave him his own authority. To reject Peter is to reject Jesus, and to reject Jesus is to reject God. Paul, also called by the grace of God to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he also had this same authority. In, in writing to the Corinthian church, Paul knows that he carries an apostolic authority that is analogous to the authority of the prophets of old, the prophets of the Old Testament. To reject his teaching is to reject God. Paul knows he has that authority. He writes in 1 Corinthians 14, quote, If anyone ignores what I am telling you, they themselves will be ignored. And Paul knows that his authority is derived from and dependent upon Christ's authority. He has authority to make judgments about situations that are new, but he has no authority to change or undermine Christ's judgments that Christ has already made. And he has no authority to change the gospel. Um, so then in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 7, he, sings, he, he says things like, to the married I give this command, well, actually, not I, but the Lord. And elsewhere he says, to the rest, I say this, actually, I, not the Lord. And in another place he says, now about this, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Now, both Protestants and Catholics, we all agree that the apostles had this authority that their judgments carry the authority of God, just as the prophets of the Old Testament carried the authority of God. But the big question is, where did this authority go after the 12 apostles died? That's the big question. And this is where Protestants and Catholics disagree as to how they answer this question, where that authority went after the apostles had gone. The Catholic view is that this authority continues to be invested in the church in general, but in Peter's ordained successors in particular. To put that specifically, the bishops continue to have apostolic authority. They occupy the office of apostle. So then... The church in general and bishops in particular can expect to make judgments like Paul on particular matters and expect those judgments to be received as though from God. Um, In a Catholic setting, um, therefore, if if somebody has a a question um, about behavior or, or ethics, let's say just for an example, they have a question on divorce and remarriage, uh, they might ask, what does the church teach? about divorce and remarriage. And in fairness to this Catholic understanding of authority, this is the ancient understanding. This understanding goes way back to the church fathers, 
that, that period of history immediately after the close of the New Testament. And it is a very natural idea to have in a world where the, where the duty of a person is to be loyal, to submit to right authority and obey, and to not question your superiors. These ideas, indeed, are found in the writings of the New Testament. The Protestant view is that apostolic authority continues to be invested in the church in general, but now in the New Testament in particular. Can I grab a Bible? There we are. Thank you. Um, so it's now the, the, the apostolic office is closed, or the apostolic office is held by a book, the New Testament. So then the job of the church is to faithfully teach the Holy Scriptures to each new successive generation of Christians. In a Protestant setting, if somebody has a question on ethics or behavior, let's say, for example, a question on divorce and remarriage, they might ask, what does the Bible teach about divorce and remarriage? In fairness to the Protestant position, it is essentially correct insofar as this is the Bible's own understanding of itself as the very word of God, living and active. The key idea to get this morning, however, that the key idea for here and now, is to see how, that the, how these different understandings of authority will lead churches in ultimately in very, very different directions. And that's the issue in the Reformation. For the Protestants felt that the Roman Catholic Church had so misunderstood and misused her authority so as to ultimately actually change the gospel message. And in changing the gospel message, then becoming in truth Christ's enemy, becoming in truth the Antichrist. The, the Protestants and the Catholics in that day, they knew that they were debating the most important question of all, which is the question of the gospel. What is the gospel? How can a person be saved? How can a person be right before God? And the two groups knew that they had different and mutually exclusive answers. In other words, they, both, they couldn't both be right. They knew this was what the debate was about. Anyway, um, so Thomas More... Um, as a devout and convinced Roman Catholic, he believed, he knew in his heart that you couldn't just discard the Archbishop of Rome, that is the Pope, as the ordained successor to St. Peter, and put in a layman, a non-ordained, non-theologically trained person in his place. And of course, he was right. I mean, the idea is nonsense from both a Catholic and a Protestant, Protestant perspective. Here at St. Barnabas, Henry wouldn't get so far as parish council. I mean, the man's a drunkard, a, a, drunkard, a glutton. Uh, his family life is a disaster. And right from the start, he's a serial adulterer. Um, Ill-tempered, violent man. Um, the, the idea is absurd from both a Catholic and a biblical perspective. Poor old Tommy Moore could see that the emperor was wearing no clothes, so to speak. It's just that he was the only person who had the guts to say it. So Sir Thomas More refused to sign. And consequently, he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. 
Many, including his, his wife and his daughters, begged him to sign. And this was in an age where you did as you were told, where, where, where a clean conscience usually was a completely unaffordable commodity. Just do it. Everybody's doing it. It doesn't mean anything anyway. Just do it. But Sir Thomas More refused. At his trial, uh, his defense was that he had never denied that the king was the supreme head of the Church of England, only that he had refused to affirm it. And no one should be condemned for what they haven't said. But the judges did condemn him. And in response, he made his position clear. For the sake of his conscience, he, he said, yeah, no, the idea is nonsense. Sorry, it's just stupid. Five days later, at his execution, he declared himself to be, quote, the king's good servant, but God's first. Unquote. And actually, the world is still the same, really. I mean, by and large, sooner and later, truth tellers get crucified. You may have discovered this for yourself. Uh, oh, I see it all the happen. Oh, I see it happen all the time. You know, in the mining industry, in government, in schools, in universities, in the classroom, in the boardroom, in the family room, in almost every workplace, truth tellers sooner or later get crucified. But we are called to still tell the truth because along with Tommy Moore, we, we acknowledge that and believe that God raises the dead. Uh, Harry, um, in terms of his beliefs, appears to have been essentially a rather conservative Roman Catholic. However, what really interested him was power. And consequently, there was no real uh, theological reform in the Church of England for the rest of his reign. Harry died in 1547, leaving three children. There we are, thank you. Uh, leaving three children. The eldest, Mary, daughter of wife number one, Catherine of Aragon. Then Elizabeth, daughter of wife number two, Anne Boleyn. And then Edward, son of wife number three, Jane Seymour. Edward, being the only boy, became king, King Edward VI at age nine. Uh, Edward had been raised as a Protestant, and it is clear that even as a child and then as a teenager, he was a deeply convinced Protestant. More to the point, Edward reigned under the guidance and direction of his uh, Seymour uncles, his, his mum's brothers, and the rest of his council were all likewise deeply convinced Protestants. So then, Edward on the throne, Archbishop Cranmer, was able to bring in, finally, major Protestant reforms into the Church of England. He introduced the Book of Common Prayer. Worship services were suddenly in English, not in Latin, and the understanding of the Eucharist changed. Clerics were allowed to marry, which was very good news for Cranmer personally, given that he was already married, and very good news for me. And there were a raft of reforms in line with the principles and priorities of the European reformers, including removing images from churches, from places of worship, and denying the veneration of saints. Uh, King Edward himself, as a convinced Protestant, he banned the Roman Catholic Mass, pushing Catholicism in England underground. His eldest sister, Mary, however, a devout Roman Catholic, 
continued to attend Mass in her home, and she refused to obey Edward on this point. Edward, however, did not live long. He died in 1553, aged 15, from a lung infection. Although technically a 16-year-old girl, Edward's cousin, Lady Jane Grey, was the next crowned monarch, her reign never had much support and it lasted only nine days before Mary, Harry's eldest daughter, was was proclaimed Queen of England and Ireland. Queen Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, was as convinced and devout a Roman Catholic as the previous administration had been convinced and devout Protestants. She swiftly returned England back to Roman Catholicism. Mary was queen for five years, and the thing she is remembered for is her zealous persecution of Protestants. Over 280 Protestants were burnt at the stake, including Thomas Cranmer and also uh, Nicholas Ridley, Archbishop of London, Um, I say that with feeling as a graduate of Ridley College, Melbourne, named for Nicholas Ridley, and also Hugh Latimer, a passionate advocate for the publication of an English Bible. Um, They're the most famous. uh, uh, Thomas's death is the most famous of those three. Thomas Cranmer was, from Mary's point of view, both a traitor and a heretic, and they are the two worst labels that you could get in late medieval Europe. Um, He was imprisoned, and over the next two years, he came under enormous pressure to recant, that is, to uh, publicly confess a change of mind. This Cranmer did, fully and apparently joyfully, renouncing renouncing all Reformed theology and accepting Roman Catholic doctrine about the Pope and the Mass and accepting the Roman Catholic sacrament of, of absolution. Under the normal laws of uh, that day, this should have saved this should have saved Thomas from the death penalty. But, but Mary was impatient, and she wanted him dead, and she wanted him dead as an example. Now, executions were public affairs that involved speeches, and Thomas was expected to die with dignity. And he began his speech by uh, thanking the assembly for their prayers, and exhorting them all to obey their queen. But then he departed from his script and he recanted his recanting, saying that he was wrong to change his mind and that he would, in the flames, punish his right hand for having signed such documents. He continued, As for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. And as for the sacrament, but at that moment he was grabbed and thrown from from the stage and dragged to the stake where he was tied up and the fire was lit and the flames spread quickly. And Cranmer, true to his word, stretched out his right hand into the flames, saying, this hand hath offended. Uh, Dying took a while, and I'll spare you the details. Um, Dying took a while, Um, but his last words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Well, Mary did not live long. Uh, She died after reigning for five years, and Elizabeth, her younger sister, succeeded her as queen in 1558. Elizabeth I is a story 
all in herself. And I'm going to say more about her next week. For this week, I'm just going to summarize her views. Um, Like her father, Henry VIII, Elizabeth was absolutely steadfast in her view that the monarch should be the supreme head of the church in England. Like her brother, Edward, she was a convinced Protestant. But unlike Edward or Mary, Elizabeth was not interested in extremism, nor in making martyrs. She, she held strongly to the notion that there could only ever be one church in England. There's, there's not going to be many churches in England, just one church. And that she was committed to the notion that she would be the supreme head, or indeed supreme governor of it, but that somehow... Other than those two things, everybody had to just simply learn to live together. And with that thought in mind, Queen Elizabeth was able to pass through Parliament her will, which was for a Protestant church, theologically, but one which would not offend Catholics unnecessarily. Um, In 1559, the Act of Uniformity was passed, an act that was foundational to the nature of the Church of England then and foundational to the nature of Anglicanism still to this day. Uh, Part of what's known as the Elizabethan religious settlement. Elizabeth's answer to the questions of her age have come to be known by an expression, uh, the we are media, in other words, the middle way. On the one hand, Anglican beliefs are Bible-believing, Bible-based. The Anglican Church is theologically a product of the Reformation, a Protestant church where the Bible is the final and highest authority, not the bishops. Worship should be in the vernacular, in the everyday language of worshippers, and the Bible is to be put into the hands of everyone, and the Bible is to be faithfully taught and expounded on Sundays. This is the job of the church, to teach the Bible to each successive generation of Christians, the whole counsel of God. On the other hand, worship would continue to look like a Roman Catholic Mass. The ministers would, be called, would continue to be called priests, And they'd continue to wear robes, as I did faithfully this morning at 8.30. And the Eucharist would look and sound a lot like a Roman Catholic Mass, only now the traditions would be given Protestant rather than late medieval Roman Catholic interpretations. In actuality, the Church of England became, simply speaking, A church where conservative Roman Catholics and Puritan Protestants simply just had to learn to live and worship together. Once again, we've uh, covered a lot of ground this morning. You may be asking yourself, what's the point? Well, actually, there are many points that could be made. This morning, I'm just going to make one point. And here's the point for today. Uh, The worldwide Anglican church is a church comprised of people who hold one conviction, that is, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Other than that, we are an extremely mixed bag. This is both our greatest strength and our greatest weakness. I'm going to talk more about the way in which it is our weakness in subsequent weeks. But for today, 
It's our greatest strength. Most other Christian churches and denominations, in marked contrast, are groups of Christians who gather around a huge platform of shared beliefs and assumptions, perhaps shared beliefs about how baptism should be, or about the Lord's Supper, or about the gifts of the Spirit, or about, or about baptism in the Spirit, or about church governance, or about all of the above. But the Anglican Church includes everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And so I know here in Perth, in the Diocese of Perth, I know here um, uh, Anglican ministers who are literally more Catholic than the Pope. And I know of Anglican ministers here in Perth who are literally more Calvinistic than Calvin. And here at St. Barnabas, in marked contrast to many other denominations and congregations, you are not going to be subject to a theological examination before you're given access to fellowship or sacrament. And that is ultimately crucial to us not becoming all neurotic, religious, and hypocritical. It is crucial to us not becoming yet another insular people like us club. It is crucial to us working together to live together after we discover, probably painfully and with much disappointment, that except for our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, we have absolutely nothing in common at all. And so it turns out that actually us Anglicans are a whole heap less like an organization than we are like a family. We are, by some strange historical accident, what church is supposed to be. What the New Testament tells us that church actually is. A mixed up and various family of Jesus. We'll return to this next week. The Lord be with you.